Hello. Welcome. This is a Monday edition or a Monday recording. Um, I'm still a little off in terms of time um, since I returned my trip, returned from my trip. And I've had some pretty interesting writing that I've been doing recently. And one of the things that I've been working on is a sort of um, buildings Roman, a, a, a sort of capture of my youth um, that really focuses on my experience in the financial markets and um, my experience with hedge funds. And the reason why I'm telling that story at the moment in a, in, in a narrative is because one, I've realized that it's something that I want to get out. And two, one of my mentors from that time, I discovered that they that they died. And I, I wanted to recognize the idea that within their obituary, um, which really did reflect the kind of person that I knew because I didn't know them quite well as even outside of work. Um, when it talked about their their work, it talked about a reward, an award that they had received, a prestigious award that they received earlier on in their career. Then they and then it mentioned that they were did something, quite frankly, dismiss. It was almost dismissive of what they had accomplished um, working in one place for sixteen years until they retired. And I and I I know. Not only the level of genius, the level of intelligence, and the level of um, commitment that they had to this job, but I also know the level of complexity and the political landscape that they had to um, understand, navigate, manipulate, uh, comprehend, and survive that whole time. And literally, that entire experience in their life was cut down to a single sentence. (laughs) And I thought to myself... That is definitely one of the ways that we start to understand that we're not going to be remembered for our work unless our work was creative. I remember her for her work. I remember her for her leadership. I remember her for her tutelage. I remember for her mentoring me. I remember, you know, I remember her because she, you know, gave me a copy of The Born Identity by Robert Ludlum. Um, And I, you know, shared... Uh, my love of Lacare with her, you know, we talked every day <laughs> for, you know, when you talk to somebody every day for, you know, four years, you know, three or four years, you do get to know them, especially since for the first 90 days, we sat right next to each other and worked and talked together the entire time. And we were the only ones in this row of desks of 10 desks. It was almost like we were living on another planet. You know, it'd be like it'd be like if 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 we were living on Pluto before they decided it wasn't a planet anymore, but it's still there. You know, there were, the sales team were probably about ten yards in front of us, and the the U.S. dollar derivatives team was about twenty yards behind us, and we just sat in this open row of desks. <laughs> and every now and then, every now and then, these other two people that worked uh, in non dollars. Would, would would they would tag team? So there were supposed to be two of them watching the desk in New York for London, and they would tag team when they needed to be in. They clearly were coordinating who needed to be at work when. 
<laughs> and it was hilarious for me because I was I was an analyst for all of them, um, including another desk on the other side, on the Jupiter side of the of the solar system. So I was constantly having to travel this sort of you know this 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 um, this bridge between the two worlds, and. Um, one of the things that I came to realize is that every time I came back, I was being asked to report what was going on on the other side. <laughs> and it was as though the oxygen was different. And I found out that it was because this person had an incredible clandestine, clandestine nature to the point where what they were doing is they were comparing the reports that I was giving them innocuously. Um, and also to make conversation and feel important um, to what they were learning elsewhere. <laughs> they were trying to figure something out and I know what they were trying to figure out. And if you want to know what they were trying to figure out, you can, you can read my book. So, um, but if you listen to this podcast, you know that if you want a copy of the book, you can always just ask me to be a reader on it because I need probably a hundred people to read it. Um, after uh, my closest friends and my editor reads it uh, before I'm even willing to, uh, you know, send it out to publishers. But um, the truth is that this podcast, what we've been doing is we're, we're on this journey where we've been talking about time and we've been talking about the usage of time as a tool. And we've been talking about age and experience and we've been talking about the idea that all of this is part of the beginning of the journey, or this is the beginning of the journey of who we are. People think they know who they are. I disagree. And I think that we all have this problem because we are so focused and so programmed and so neurologically inclined to accept what we are as who we are, when I don't think that that's true. I don't think that how other people label us and our job titles have anything to do with our identity. And I also believe strongly that it might, we might not be able to articulate our identity. It might be ineffable, but I was complimented for using that word earlier. So I'm definitely using it now, but we tend to disallow the fact that our identity might not be something that we can articulate. It's something that we can feel and it's something we can demonstrate. And it's something that other people can articulate for us. They are the person that we can count on. They are the person that we can confide in. They are the person that we can ask the complicated questions to. They are the person that we can bring the metaphysical, philosophical arguments to. They are the person that knows when it's limerence, when it's love, when it's attraction, when it's infatuation. They're the person that we rely on. They're the person we distrust. They're the villain in our story. They're a complex anti-hero in, in my story. You know, all of these things are potential archetypes. And we will be talking quite, quite deeply about archetypes. We'll probably go through a study that I call Prime later on. But we'll probably go through, we'll definitely go through it, but we'll probably go through it in some detail. Um and I will publish those essays separately um, as a guide to that part of the podcast. So an interesting uh, exercise that I came up with um, and that I've been working on quite heavily 
is the fact that if we are confused, if we often um, misunderstand um, or think that what we are has something to do with who we are, perhaps it's important to audit what we are or what we have been and how and understand ultimately that everything we have been, we still are today. We're just not necessarily employing um, that intellectual or, or psychological or um, philosophical um, part of our identity or part of our learnings or part of our experience as who we are today. And it's important to remember that we all have many versions of ourselves that we present to the world. And only we know when we're being 100% vulnerable, unless you have somebody that really loves you and then they know when you're definitely being 100% vulnerable. And most of the time, if they really love you, they will call you out and they will say, listen, I think you're being a little defensive. Why don't we reframe this conversation and try to get you to relax? And they don't mean relax, like, oh, just relax. What they mean is I want to see more of you. I want to see the vulnerable side of you. Because that is such a beautiful thing to see. When somebody is truly vulnerable with you, that's when you start to critically understand, you know what? Maybe, maybe they are. Maybe they are the person. You know, the person that I can really trust with 100% of myself, with who I am. Um, because what you are is part of the conversation that's at the start of the relationship, right? It's at the start of every friendship. It's at the start of every cocktail, cocktail party you've ever been to. People always ask you what you do for a living. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? What they're asking you is what you are. That's what they want to know. They want to know what you are, what label they can put on you. How can they um, categorize you? How can they um, reconcile you? I had a friend, I have, still have a friend. I love him to death, but you know, we don't, we don't get to talk often because, <laughs> because we live, we live so far away from each other, but we spent an incredible formative amount of time together. And, and, and I can tell you now that his motto was, you cannot reconcile me. And he was the one who really started me thinking about big data rodeo, really, really started me thinking about the idea that you can't reconcile people because we hide, we hide the truth of who we are. So often we are so, um, we're taught to do that. We're programmed to do that. We are, you know, neurologically balanced to masking and hiding. And yes, being Hyde instead of Jekyll or being Jekyll instead of Hyde, if you, you know, buy into my theory. Ultimately, look, at the, final, at the final crossing, right, in our last moments, as we um, have not discussed in a lot of detail, but um, that I am certainly willing to go into, is at the end of our lives, we will look back and we will see what is the most important th moment in our lives. And I believe, just like Kant, who saw the black swan and realized who he was as a result of that, a complete fraud, by the way. Um, and somebody who had put his faith into something that um, did not deserve it. We're in a strict situation where we're going to look back. And I think the most important thing in a lot of people's lives 
um, will be the day we recognized who we are, as opposed to living with the labels that the world has given us and we have given ourselves based on what we are. Um, in 1969, when I was born, what was I? No. The obvious answers are I was a baby. I was a child. I was... But no, I was an interruption. I was, I was, a, I was, a, um, I was proof of pain in my parents' relationship. You know, and over the next year, it became obvious that things weren't going to work out between them and we weren't going to be a family, you know, and I wasn't going to have those moments that therapists say define me, which is that I never saw one parent bring home food and both parents prepare the food together. And then the three of us sit down at a table and eat the food. I never saw that. Okay. To the point where one of the things that happened to me when I was young is that they found me on the kitchen floor down the stairs. So I'm unaccompanied, um, unobserved. I've somehow made it down the stairs and I'm in the kitchen and I've pulled out pots and pans and I'm playing them like drums with utensils. I told that story once to a, to, to a friend of mine and they paused and they started to cry and they looked at me and they said, your parents abandoned you at birth. Do you realize that? Now we know that the word trauma is about the wound. It's not about the occurrence. Okay. A lot of people think it's about the occurrence when in actuality it's about the wound. And you can get hurt based on something not happening just as much as something happening. Right. So we have to be really careful about the way we use the word trauma, but we also have to be careful and understand that there are people out there with invisible pains that they don't know about, that they do know about. But one of the things that's important is that I come to realize that as a child, as a baby, all the way through being a toddler, being a young boy, um, being a teen, preteen, being a, being a teenager, up until up until 1987 when I graduated high school, which was which was probably, I I would say it was. One of the single greatest achievements of my life to have survived my childhood, literally survived my childhood. I mean, the things that happened to me, I was assaulted, I was abused, I was ignored, I was alone, I was, you know, I was physically abused, I was hurt by the people who were supposed to take care of me. I was abandoned. I was tossed aside. I was recycled. I mean, I was, I was nothing to most of the people that I came into daily contact with. Nothing but an intrusion, a distraction, a problem, something that they had to deal with. You know, I mean, the number of caregivers that I was assigned to growing up. I was nothing to them. I would say that it's only to my grandmothers 
and a particular aunt and uncle that I can put any feeling whatsoever that I had a parent. This particular aunt and uncle, especially my uncle's gone now. And I, 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 I have such fond memories of him being the closest thing to a father that I ever had. I mean, there is another person um, on the other side of the family. And he was the kind of guy who taught me how to drive. He taught me how to shave. He taught me how to swim. By the way, he taught me how to swim by throwing me into the water off a dock. <laughs> okay. And at the time, I remember hitting the water and thinking, never, never let them see you sweat. <laughs> so I just acted like Mark Spitz, who I watched a lot of tape of. And tried to um, somehow mimic what I had seen <laughs> on the triathlon because I used to watch the Iron Man from Hawaii, so I used to I used to get a real sense of what endurance was all about, and, but and really relate to those people because every every day felt like a marathon run to me. Every day felt like an endurance challenge. I I didn't go to bed thinking I was going to survive the night. I didn't go to bed thinking that um, – I, I used to pack. I used to pack a bag expecting that I was going to be moved. Um, the idea of a go bag was not new to me when I first watched um, whatever show had a go bag in it. It might, it might have been that uh, burn notice, that, that Miami spy thing, which was hilarious. But – yeah, the idea of a go bag didn't escape me when I when I when I came across it because the truth is that I had a go bag as a child. You know, it was by the it was it was in the closet or it was by the door every day, and I realize now that it was a hope. It was a hope. I was I was in an environment that I wanted to get the hell out of all the time. <laughs> I mean, all all of the time. So. By 1987, when I graduated high school, that wasn't the first time that I was finding safety, but it was the first time that I was able to, I, I had the autonomy to find safety without anybody asking me any questions. And of course, you know, by 1989, I mean, I left, I traveled, I um, did uh, very fast diplomas and the starts of, and got some college credit internationally before I went back to the United States in 1989. And in Miami, when I got back, um, I was on a journey. I was on a path. I wanted to get my series, my series uh, three license. I wanted to get my trading license, my broking license. I wanted to get my options license. I wanted to, I had figured out that I needed money and I had figured out how I was going to get it. And that the life of an artist, the life of a writer, was great and it was really fantastic and it was really important, but it also meant that I was going to have to be a bartender to finance it. And I didn't want to do that because I didn't want my energy to disappear into night shifts. I watched my mother work night shifts. I watched my, I watched, you know, my aunts work night shifts. I was raised by seven women. I watched the night swallow the energy of an entire generation of my family. And I refused to be that person. I watched my father night shifts. I saw the, I saw the devastating effects of working at night. And um, I didn't, I didn't want to be that person. I mean, I still don't want to be that person. But I mean, luckily, I don't have to make that choice. But, but you know, in the 
at the time I was bartending and I was waiting tables and I was going to school at the time. I was taking these ridiculously hard math courses and these ridiculous computer labs that were, you know, eight hours long trying to learn coding, defunct coding, by the way. But I was trying to learn how, I mean, ultimately I was learning C and C++, C++ and C++. And I was learning how to basically use Lotus. What you see is what you get and be able to write options pricing programs and derivative pricing programs in these things. And by the time I got to Wall Street three years later, I mean, at the end of 1992, I can tell you right now that everything that I had learned was def- def- defunct by a company called um, Swiss Bank Corporation because they had bought the biggest options traders in the world that were O'Connor Partnerships. And these are the people I wanted to work for in Chicago. But of course, by the time I was able to try to work for them, they were bought by Swiss Bank Corporation who were never going to hire me. And then Swiss Bank Corporation eventually got eaten by Union Bank of Switzerland who recently bought Credit Suisse. So where most of the people from O'Connor Partnership had gone when the UBS, when, when the SBC-UBS merger had taken place and they started gutting the old O'Connor Guard. So my point is that you know, while I can make a connection between me and any headline in the news, I can also identify the idea that by the time you get to 1992, I did know more about what I was. I did know that I was um, somebody who wanted to be a writer and somebody who didn't have money. And I was an opportunist. That's exactly what I was. 1989, 1992, leading all the way up through 1997, and the year 2000, I was an opportunist and I had to be, I had to be, I had to try to figure out how, who I was. Um, but I had things that I had to do. I had to complete art school, which was going to cost money that nobody was going to give me. So I had to work full time at the bank to do it. I, you know, I didn't have friends. I had friends from high school, but they weren't leaving Florida and I was living in New York and New Jersey. And I didn't, and I, and I didn't want, and I knew that I couldn't, I, I could, I needed people close to me who I could trust, who I could love. And I, and I still communicate with them. Um, some of them. And, um, we all have our soap operas, right? But, but I was something, um, important to myself at that point, because I, I was an opportunist but I was also a satisfied mind. I was a satisfied mind. I knew what I was doing and the consequences of what I was doing. I tell this great story. Well, I think it's a great story. It might be boring, but I tell the story about how I was offered a job that tripled my salary. And I was told, frankly, that it was a big risk, that that, that the chances are that the job wouldn't be there in a year and that I was going to end up um, in a tough spot. Well, I joined, I took, I took the opportunity, I took the salary bump, I recorded record profits in my first month while I was there. And as a result, I was traded to London as they dismantled the department in New York. Fine. No problem. And I got to take my P&L with me and I was given a job that was not the job that I was doing um, in New York. And there was a lot of risk. I was running a casino for this bank. It was, 
you know, Italy was under severe pressure. Berlusconi was in, was in charge, which meant that it was all going to fall apart. And, you know, it did. And, and Italy melted into the ground. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the technical details of what happened, but basically it's kind of like the company turning around and it's, it's kind of like somebody stealing the money the insurance company gives you after you crash your car. So you crash your car, you need to buy a new car. You're fine, by the way. You know, the insurance company does pay out, but you don't get a new car. <laughs> you, that, that money just disappears. Somebody takes it. And, and, and that's basically what happens. So, so what I did was I, I, I ended up, again, staying an opportunist and taking advantage of what was in front of me. And I did that until 2000. When so the for the best part of a decade, I was just an opportunist, and looking back on that, that's what I had to be to survive. I was in panic mode. I was in survival mode. I didn't think I was going to survive a day's work. I used to go to work thinking this could be the last day. Make sure you see so and so and say something. You know, <laughs> and the reason why I felt that is because I was not having imposter syndrome. I was an imposter. That wasn't my environment. Those weren't my waters to swim in. I was working hard with a suit of armor to make it through every single day. I wasn't an industrialist. I wasn't a capitalist. I'm a, I, I, listen, I'm a creative, okay? I wanted to draw comic books and write them. And it wasn't until Frank Miller wrote The Dark Knight Returns that I thought that somebody could do both at the same time. And I remember walking around showing people the comic book saying, you told me that I couldn't be both the writer and the artist for a comic. Well, guess what? If he can do it, I can do it. Well, of course, I never met Frank Miller, but I ended up reading Denny O'Neill, who discovered him and who edited him on Daredevil and then edited him during creating Bullseye and creating Elektra and then obviously creating, you know, my hand and then eventually going on to write The Dark Knight Returns for DC. So, which was an ending that DC thought they would never publish, but they would. And that's why when people talk about rumors around whether or not, you know, Zack Snyder is going to get to complete or even do more DC movie, DC based movies. Warner Brothers are stupid. Warner Brothers are going to, are going to license those characters to Netflix. No problem. He's already got a multi-picture deal with, with Netflix. There's no re and there's an audience for, um, for his work that you know is not going away so i mean absolutely they're going to get an opportunity to just you know and i think they're going to take the opportunity to do it i think all the rumors are true and you know it's because there's, a, there's an audience for his work and that's what i wanted i wanted an audience for my work and i wanted and i wanted to be able to say that not only am i writing about something that i know about but i'm i had the experience and I'm not sure there's a noun for experience chaser, but that's definitely what I was because I knew I wanted to be a writer, but you can't, you, you, it's tough being a writer when you haven't done the work. That was the thing that I learned. So the other thing that I learned is that, you know, I was really trying to 
um, reconcile and deal with a lot of conflict that I had left over from growing up and being in survival mode every day and panic mode all of the time and being an imposter. So when I came to Europe, I tried to get closer to, to what I really wanted to do. So I did start writing um, every single day and I did make sure that the work that I was doing was stuff that I wanted to write about. And it's interesting because there is a conversation that I had probably sometime around 2002 where somebody asked me why I was working in tech. And I, and I explained to them that what I really wanted to do is be on the team that helped invent the ability for writers to write anywhere. So, you know, if I wanted to live on the beach in Hollywood, California, you know, in Hollywood, if, if I wanted to live on Hermosa Beach, Okay, sorry, I should be more specific. I wanted, if I wanted to live on Hermosa Beach, that means that all I would need is a mobile device and a decent, a decent network. And I could write on my device and I could publish on my device. That's what I wanted. Okay, and I wanted, and I wanted to be on the team to design that because guess what? That's what I wanted to do. And now I can do that. Um, you know, and now look at me. I mean, I'm recording this thing and I can take a transcript of it later through Otter. You know, and, 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 you know, let's be, let's be frank that it's important to recognize the things that you want to do that are going to help you. And it's okay to work in situations that you have that, that are going to benefit you. So I really, really have a sense of what was happening when I moved to Europe. And when I moved to Europe, I definitely think that one of the things that I was searching for is the time and space to write. And I think I really found it. And I think I genuinely... Um, got an opportunity to do more and more um, important things that meant that I was going to be able to um absorb what I was experiencing and not only report on it, but be able to use it as a platform to create with. Um, other than that, I would say that from 2000 on, I was definitely a seeker. I was definitely a seeker because I was looking for something. And of course, what I ended up looking for wasn't my marriage. It wasn't my, <laughs> this is not what I was looking for. What I was looking for was um, a place to be safe, um, a place for me to also complete what I would call is the cycle within the confines of capitalism, um, within the confines of the working world. I mean, I always wanted to, try and merge my experience in um, financial markets with my corporate, my marketing experience. 
So I knew that there were jobs in treasury that I could chase, but by the time I was ready to apply for them, um, um, because I just thought that that was a real possibility. And when, and when I was ready to do it, I didn't do it. I didn't want to. I wanted to move on. I wanted to move on. So by the time you get to 2015, I was definitely in a situation where I was um, no longer being an opportunist. I was no longer being a seeker. And I was um, – a lot of people have told me that they think I was an athlete at this point because I was – Training for a 100. So I, I ran my first marathon, um, full-length marathon distance. I ran, I ran 21 kilometers, was given a large fries and a strawberry milkshake. Um, and then uh, from a company whose name I won't use, but they are more than happy to, um, to try to give me money to, to, to mention them in my, in my, in my cast. I will, I will do full-blown um, special explanations of my relationship with them, um, online recordings, but I'll even make movies if they give me enough money. But, but, you know, if Justin Timberlake can take the money, I can take the money. But I, I, I would say that, so I ate that walked 5k to run that off. So now I'm at 26 kilometers and I ran another 21 kilometers to complete the 42. But the interesting thing was the second 21 was faster than the first 21, which was amazing to me. So that was in January of 2013. It was freezing. It was on a Tuesday night. And then um, after I did that, I was well on my way to crossing 50. And by the time I crossed 50, I was on my way to crossing 100. And I ran 100 in June of 2014. And everybody that knew me knew they asked me about my training and they asked me about my diet and they asked me about my meal plan and they asked me about my strength training and they asked me about when I'm going to do the run and what I'm doing the run. And when I did the run, everybody was aware of it and everybody saw, everybody was very complimentary and very helpful. My friend, my friend from, not from high school, but he married a girl that I know from, a woman that I know from high school who, and I consider them to be two of my long-term closest, closest friends. I mean, I still... I don't talk to them at all um, anymore. So we're probably not, we used to be friends. And, and, and I'm sure that we would be perfectly happy to pick up where we left off, but they're lovely, lovely people. And he and another friend of ours when we were younger, much younger, 1989, would run. And I was very jealous that they could run uh, 10 miles. So I started really focusing on wanting to run a part of his 100 mile run with him. So he was, he was, he was recruiting people to run part of the run with him, which I thought was really interesting. So I learned how to run a hundred and on my 90th mile, I was on the, I was on messenger with his wife and she was saying to me, yeah, at the end, his mind really went. His body was going to do it, but I, we didn't know whether his mind was going to make it. And that's exactly how I felt at the time. I was really questioning what reality was. <laughs> I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know what time it was. Um, and, and the after effects of that were, again, that same kind of feeling of, wow, I really am confused. And that has a lot to do, apparently, with just depletion and just exhaustion and dehydration 
But then it happened again in 2015, and I was really – I mean, I ended up in the hospital after the 200-mile run. That really, really hurt. Um, that really, really hurt. And then, of course, that led to my being very unwell at the beginning of 2016 and being in the hospital multiple times. Um, that's when my friend sent me the flowers, which is captured in the book. Um, and then um, I – You know, emerged from there, 2016, and a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And my acupuncturist to this day says, yeah, they made you sicker than you were. They, they made you, they made you sicker. I mean, don't forget, they told me that I had a tumor in my stomach that was seven millimeters in diameter and that they were going to have to remove, they were going to have to give me a partial gastrectomy in order to be able to, to get this thing out. So they were looking to take half my stomach. And if it wasn't for the tumor board being delayed, I probably would have had the operation straight away without even thinking about it. But because I had the time in between the tumor boards, I was able to sit down and eat raw vegetables and sit in the Italian sunshine and drink sparkling water. Because I wasn't going to sit in a hospital bed for two and a half, three weeks while they made up their minds. Um, and then they turn around and they scan me and they said, we don't know what you did, but the tumor shrunk. And, 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 and I mean, my acupuncturist says, look, they made you sick. So who knows what it was? It was... It, it, you know, I mean, I can say now that they were saying that it was an object, that it was a perforation, that it was a wound, that it was, you know, but they were willing to call it a tumor and they weren't willing to buy it. They couldn't biopsy it until they took it out. So they were looking to do a partial gastrectomy. It's a pretty extreme procedure and I'm glad that they didn't do it and I'm glad that the, for the delay. But the truth is that when I got the opportunity to take care of myself and make my own decisions, and at that time, you know, now I look back. I was an agent for myself for the first time. Do you know that? It's really interesting. It took me to be extremely sick to be an advocate and an agent for myself. Um, and I had to get through some legal trouble. And I you know, had been through 10 years of talk therapy with one therapist and started full time with another therapist. And we were talking so heavily about my identity that we were ignoring the roles I was playing in the world. And I think that that is the key for all of us. Recognize and label the roles that you are playing in the world. Do it. Especially those roles that you are playing in your own life, for yourself, for yourself, for the times that you are being sensibly selfish. Don't be afraid to call yourself the, your own worst enemy. Don't be afraid to call yourself your hero. Don't be afraid to call yourself your caregiver. Don't be afraid to identify what role you are playing specifically and give yourself the label and know what you are. That will help you differentiate and identify and contemplate and understand and mediate with yourself to separate labels, what you are, versus identity, who you are. By the time you get to 2020, I'm feeling like when people ask me, you know, what I am, I'm saying writer. I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm an artist. And that's how people are identifying me. I went to a job interview 
um, wasn't a job interview. It was somebody needed a mentor. They needed a coach. And they, they asked me if I would come in to see whether we were a good fit for me to coach them. And probably about 20 minutes um, into it, she was a mortgage derivatives trader. And I, I was telling her about what it was like when I had to do that job. And, and, and she said to me, she said, I thought you were an artist. I thought you were here to do the paintings in the, on the floor. We have a guy coming in, a, a consultant coming in to do the paintings on the floor. I, I didn't think you were somebody that had financial markets experience. I said, yeah, I've changed a lot. What I was then, I'm not what I am now. It's so true in relationships. People married for 10 years, 20 years. Do they realize that the person that they married changes too? That neither of them are the same people, you know. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I get along so well with my person because we've changed together, and we are accepting of one another of what we were then, and we were accepting of one another then, and we're accepting of one another now, radically accepting of one another now. But you're not having to force it, you know. It's, 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 it's a natural feeling of being accepted and not being judged. That's the key. And I encourage you, I invite you not to judge yourself when you come up with the labels for yourself. Do not judge yourself. You are what you are. I was an opportunist. Fine. I was an amateur athlete. Fine. I was a psych patient. Fine. You know, I was a, I was a, I was very sick. I was a patient. <laughs> Fine. You know, I was a prisoner of my own self, of my own choices. Fine. You know, I was a drinker. No, I wasn't. That's why I don't drink now. You either are a smoker or you're not a smoker. Robin Williams gave us that advice in the Fisher King. If you've never, oh no, and Dead Again, excuse me, not in the Fisher King, and Dead Again. If you've never seen Dead Again, watch Dead Again. It has a lot to do with identity, but Robin Williams is in it. And he plays a guy who was disgraced as a psychiatrist. So he's working, he's working at a drugstore. He's working at a convenience store in New York. He's lifting boxes. He's wearing fingerless gloves. He's smoking cigarettes. And he says, people are or they're not. You either are a smoker or you're not a smoker. He's right. I'm not a smoker. I was raised by smokers. I'm not a smoker. Not a drinker either. That's why I don't drink. If we're honest with ourselves about what we truly are, with ourselves, other people's opinions of us, they're not our business. But if we're honest with ourselves about what we are, we can very quickly get to a place where we can say we know what we are. I know I'm not a drinker. I know I'm not a smoker. I know. I know. <laughs> I know that I am a friend. I know that I'm a listener. I know that I'm an artist. And when you know that about yourself, I think it can bring us peace. Or it can help. Definitely. As long as we suspend the judgment. And we stop with the idea that we have to put energy into forgiving ourselves for something that happened in the past. The past doesn't exist. 
Okay. Keep having this conversation. The past cannot be altered. It does not exist. The way you remember it, that's not the way it happened. <laughs> Memory is a choice. And most of the time we're remembering it the way that we want to remember it. We're not remembering it the way it happened. If we saw a replay of the way it happened, we would be shocked at how the details have changed based on our own fundamental need to filter it through the idea that we're in the best possible possible position. But that's okay. That's for another time. You see, the thing is that people, they think they know who they are. And I disagree. And I think people know what they are. And I would disagree and say, have you done the audit? Are you able to sit down and say all of the roles that you have played for you in your own life? Well, if you haven't, I invite you to do so. Being able to talk about it, being able to express it, being able to understand it and see it and share it. <laughs> it's a big step into knowing who you are. For all of us to know who we are. And I think we've learned enough lessons in the world that from people we may or may not know. That knowing who we are is always going to be the thing that brings us the most peace, the most solace, the most quarter. I am Martin Johnstone. Thank you for listening. <laughs>